This episode with Bruce Rydell experienced some technical difficulties. While audio in certain spots may be difficult to follow, the episode is certainly worth your time as Bruce provides crucial insights into the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that you won't want to miss. Happy listening. This is the Burn Bag Podcast. I'm Andre Gonoela. I'm Ryan Rosenthal. Today, we're so happy to be joined by Bruce Rydell, who is a senior fellow at Brookings, where he also serves as the director of the Brookings Intelligence Project. Uh, Bruce served for over 30 years in the CIA, retiring in 2006, and had many postings overseas. Bruce was also a senior advisor on South Asia and the Middle East to the last four presidents of the United States, serving on the staff at the National Security Council at the White House. Bruce also served as a Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Near East and South Asia at the Pentagon, and was also a senior advisor at NATO. Uh, Notably for the purpose of this interview, Bruce was a member of President Clinton's peace process team and negotiated at Camp David and other Arab-Israeli summits. So, and for the purpose of this interview, we are going to be looking specifically at Bruce's experience at that summit, as well as his views on the broader Israeli foreign policy situation, Israel's relationships with the broader Middle East, and so on. So, Bruce, we're happy to have you on, uh, and we're looking forward to this conversation. I'm delighted to be with you. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast, Bruce. So, let's um, kind of begin the conversation by looking back a ways to the Clinton administration, which uh, you, of course, played a crucial role in. Um, and so, the Clinton administration, right, attempted to advance the Israel Palestine dialogue through the Oslo Accords and subsequent summits. Uh, you were there, uh, you know, most notably at the Camp David summit. So, Bruce, what was your assessment at the time? Were you optimistic about the prospect for peace? Really. Uh, let me begin with a little bit of background. Bill Clinton came into office, inherited an ongoing uh, Arab-Israeli peace process after the liberation of uh, in 1991, uh, in the Madrid Peace Conference. That process involved uh, direct negotiations between Israel uh, and their neighbors. The PLO was not represented directly in those talks. Consequently, the negotiation had basically stalemated by the time Clinton came in. The uh, administration of Yitzhak Rabin then handed Bill Clinton a prize of the Oslo agreements. Um, we had very little knowledge about what was going on in Norway uh, and only uh, a little bit of forewarning of the announcement of the Oslo. The Oslo agreements, of course, brought Yasser Arafat and the PLO directly into the negotiation. Uh, I think it is safe to say that Clinton felt an enormous debt uh, to get Sakharovin. Uh, for giving him this remarkable opportunity so early in his first administration. And that sense of debt only grew uh, after Rabin was assassinated uh, and even more that he owed his friend. So he determined in uh, the late 1990s to try to accelerate that process. He had limited success with the Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu at the Y River Accords. Uh, in 1998, but that only dealt fairly marginal issues. He decided in 2000 uh, 
that he would go for broke. He would try for everything. He would try to get a comprehensive and full peace agreement between Israel and the Palestinians. It's worth noting that before he tried the Palestinians, he tried the Syrians, because by all all measures, Syria would be a much easier issue to accomplish. It doesn't have the question of the whole city of Jerusalem. But he failed at that, uh, most notably at a peace conference held in Charlottesville, West Virginia, between Christmas and New Year's, um, 1999 to 2000. He and the new Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak embarked on the idea of a conference to find a final and comprehensive solution to the Israeli-Palestinian. Among Clinton's advisors, I think I was by far the most skeptical. I was skeptical because I didn't think the three leaders coming to this conference were going to be able to pull it off. First of all, Yasser Arafat. I knew Arafat by this point very, very well. Arafat was definitely capable of making uh, decisions and agreeing to compromises that dealt with short to midterm issues. But he wasn't capable of making a final and comprehensive agreement. There are several reasons for that. First of all, Palestinians would need 100% of the West Bank and Gaza returned to them. Dot uh, had gotten 100% of the Sinai. King Hussein had gotten 100% of Jordan's territory. Assad had failed to get 100% at Shepherdstown and had rejected a deal. Arafat needed to stand up to the same level. There was no way the Israelis were going to give him 100%. Uh, they might have been able to get to 100% if they were willing to give Israeli territory in swaps. But the Israelis had shown no interest in anything like that. The Israelis came to Camp David thinking that a deal could be done with maybe 80% at the most West Bank return to the Palestinians. I knew that wouldn't work. Secondly, Arafat's core constituency was never West Bank and Gaza Palestinians. His core constituency was the Palestinian diaspora, Palestinians who lived in Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Iraq, Gulf states. These Palestinians wanted to go home, not to Ramallah or Gaza, Hebron, but to Ramla, Haifa, Akko, to the Galilee. A deal that compensated them in some way for giving up their right to go home is going to be extremely unpopular uh, with his core constituency. And Arafat would never agree to that. So Arafat, in my view, was not going to be prepared for the final agreement. Uh, and he made that abundantly clear, well in advance of the summit. Netanyahu had demonstrated at Shepherdstown that despite the fact that he was the most decorated soldier in the history of the Israel Defense Force, he found it very hard to make the final hard judgment and leap at an agreement. At Shepherdstown, we had 99% of agreement, but the last 1%, giving Syria access to the Sea of Galilee, Lake. Tiberius, uh, he couldn't do. Uh, and I feared that the same thing would happen at Camp A. And finally, I knew from my own experience that at the end of the day, Bill Clinton was not going to put on the government of Israel naked. 
He hadn't been willing to do that at Shepherdstown, and he wasn't going to be willing to do it at Camp David. The community, as the peace process being referred to, uh, American Jewish and, and their American uh, supporters of Zionism, was not going to be in favor of pressuring Israel. And that was particularly true July of 2000, with the Democratic Party convention coming up in August, just a month later. So I didn't think it would work. And worse than that, I thought to try and fail would have severe consequences. We would end up uh, producing a backlash uh, that could erupt into major violence. Thank uh, God. For all those reasons, I counseled against it. Uh, but the president, very much encouraged by Barack, uh, decided to go forward. I don't criticize the president in the end. The president was trying to do the right thing, trying to get a Palestinian-Israeli agreement. It would have been a huge accomplishment, not just for him, but for American interests throughout the region and the stability of the globe. But as I said, I didn't think there was a very good chance we would succeed. I made my view clear. But when the president decided to go forward, I saluted and joined the team. And um, we helicoptered up to Camp David and spent the better part of two weeks trying to uh, make it work. Certainly. And I mean, you know, we fast forward just seven years from the Oslo, uh, the beginning of that uh, deal. Fast forward seven years and, you know, we see, as you said, the Clinton term is coming to an end. Uh, and certainly the president wants to do the right thing, but he also wants this quote unquote win on the Israel-Palestine issue. Uh, certainly for our broader American interests as well. And as you've said quite eloquently, you know, you were at the Camp David summit. Many analysts saw this as a, quote, last-ditch effort to save the Oslo process overall. But just to clarify and just to follow up, why did relations between the two sides deteriorate so much in these intervening years? And uh, what, like, could you sort of reiterate, I guess, President Clinton's own goals in hosting the summit months before leaving office? I guess specific goals. Well, the Oslo process was built around the notion that we would lead frankly, that Israel would first hand Gaza and Jericho over to the uh, Palestinians. Then, uh, after further negotiation, other parts of the West Bank uh, would be handed over progressively. Uh, the problem with this was that uh, the logic of it, that time would encourage confidence in it, actually worked the other way around. Time didn't uh, On the Palestinian side, the uh, PLO, or what it has now become the Palestinian Authority, today, was incapable of preventing acts of terrorism, particularly acts of terrorism carried out by the extreme Islamic group Hamas. The Israeli public didn't differentiate very much they and Hamas. It was an act of terrorism, the responsibility of the Palestinians to have prevented it. Um, therefore, Arafat failed his. On the Palestinian side, of course, the continued development of settlements, their growth, uh, undermined their sense of confidence in the Israeli side. Now, this became particularly true uh, during the Netanyahu. Netanyahu made no uh, 
pretense that he supported the Oslo process, was against the Oslo process, against the creation of a Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza, and he remains against the creation of Gaza and the West Bank, full authority and sovereignty today. Well, instead of building confidence, seven years actually eroded confidence. And that was one of the things that Clinton was trying to reverse by a summit that came David, uh, to restore confidence in the process by coming up with a full, complete, permanent agreement with Israel and the Palestinians. Now, Bill Clinton undoubtedly had a lot of motives in the back of his mind. Um, presidents, I've, I've worked with four presidents and uh, up close. And I can tell you that in the last months of their administration, the question of legacy begins to become enormous. Uh, what is my legacy going to be? What have I, what have I accomplished in my years in office? And this is one that, that Bill Clinton had devoted an enormous amount of effort to. Uh, personally, uh, you know, at the, at the Y River Conference at Shepherdstown and at Camp David, Bill Clinton was there at the negotiating table dealing directly with the Israelis and the Arabs. Really, there's nothing like it, uh, aside from Jimmy Carter's Camp David uh, in the history of American diplomacy. American presidents don't usually come to the negotiating table, make the sausage themselves. That's what the Secretary of State is for. Uh, but Bill Clinton was willing to do it. I'm sure other issues were on his mind. He didn't want to be remembered as the president who'd had an affair with Monica Lewinsky. He wanted to be remembered as the president who resolved the Israeli-Palestinian. He wanted to do justice by his friend Yitzhak Rabin. Um, and there had been a successful peace agreement at Camp David. That would have been a huge feather in the cap of the Democrats. Been Al Gore, uh, a very strong chance of winning the presidency. Uh, in November 2000. So all these motives, I'm sure, came together. Um, and as I said, the president rolled up his sleeves and for 13 days, as hard as he could to try to get the deal. Uh, we never came close. I know that there's a um, uh, argument around that at Camp David, we were almost there, or spucky. We were never anywhere near came clear from day one uh, that the gap between the parties, key issues, fundamental and crucial, and that we had no, no way of um, putting them to an agreement. So when we look at, I mean, the summit's failure, uh, we see the second intifada pop up just you know shortly thereafter. Was this a direct result of the summit's failure? And moreover, do you believe that, I mean, the leaders of Israel and Palestine, Arafat and Barak, do you think one or both of them came to the summit with the idea that perhaps they weren't going to actually come to an agreement, that this was just, they just came for show? Well, Arafat came very reluctantly. He didn't want to come. He made that clear from the beginning. Uh, and once the summit began, he repeatedly asked assurances if it failed, he would not be blamed. Assurances which he was given and which were not lived up to. 
Um, Barack came to the summit with, I think, two ideas. His preferred idea was a deal. Good Barack understood and does to this day that the really Palestinian poses an existential threat. But if he couldn't get a deal, uh, Barack wanted to, quote, unmask, expose Arafat as not really a champion peace, but as a charlatan, if you like. Um, this idea of unmasking Arafat was very, very dangerous. Uh, it would it forced that could either have one or two outcomes, complete success or complete failure. You know, the better outcome of Camp David would have been to agree to some kind of uh, interim next step, uh, the, the withdrawal of Israeli troops from some percentage of territory in the West. In other words, keep the process going. By complete failure, seven years of Oslo uh, had created uh, first great expectations among the Palestinians. Uh, when, is the, when is the occupation going to end? That's what Palestinians know. When will the Palestinian state be created? And after seven years, that disappointment was producing a very volatile situation in the West Bank Gaza. And the failure of Camp David only made it clear that there was no light on the horizon. So now I just wanted to move into a conversation on Israel's relationships with its neighbors. So as we all know, Israel has long had a difficult relationship with nearly all of its neighbors, actually. And, uh, but we have seen this increasing trend towards this normalization, which appears to be promising. What is your assessment of the normalization of relations between Israel and the UAE, Bahrain, and Sudan? Uh, anytime uh, countries uh, engage in uh, conversation with each other, that's a good thing. It is much better to have uh, people talking to each other uh, than to have them isolated. Um, I think it's also important to bear in mind that, that um, Israel has full peace agreements with Two of its neighbors, very important, Egypt. Both of those agreements are called old. Uh, there's very little human interaction between Egyptians and Israelis. As there was a brief splurge of tourism by Israelis into Jordan after the peace time, but not very much so. Um, Israelis are are not really welcomed by the communities or the street communities in Egypt. And Israelis know they're not welcome. Um, so there is a limit to what normalization uh, has produced in the last um, several decades uh, since the Tanakh uh, Church of Jerusalem. 1970. I think we should bear that limitation. Part of the limitation is, of course, because the conflict isn't really resolved. Uh, the conflict is not really between Egypt and Israel, or between Bahrain and Israel, between Israelis and Palestinians. And until that conflict is resolved, uh, most Arabs 
are not going to view Israel as a friendly neighbor. They may have to deal with it, but they're not going to see it as a neighbor. And polling in the Arab world shows overwhelming majority of Arabs, more than 80%, um, don't see normalization as they want personally participate. Um, the UAE is, is different in many ways. Uh, somewhere between 80 and 90% of the population of the UAE are not Arab. Uh, they're immigrant workers, many of them from India, Pakistan, the Philippines, but also people from the United States, the UK, Germany, France. Uh, these are people who don't really have much interest uh, in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or the Arab-Israeli problem or, or anything the government UAE does. What they're interested in is their patron. Now, this gives the government of the UAE which is a leading force behind the wave of normalization in enormous latitude. It doesn't have to worry about a domestic background because there really isn't a um, significant a community of Emiratis deeply committed. It also means it's much easier to have Israelis come and do business in Abu Dhabi and Dubai because most of the people Israelis will encounter when they go to the shopping mall Dubai are not Arabs. They're Pakistanis, they're Indians, they're Filipinos. Um, the UAE is, is the leading force here. I think it's, it's for a number of reasons. Um, one of them is a very good one. Uh, the UAE attached as the condition of its agreement to, to opening relations with Israel that annexation of West Bank, particularly of the Jordan River Valley, part of Kushner's um, deal of the century, would be put on hold for the indefinite future. Uh, that was a good idea for many reasons, not the least of which, if Israel had gone forward, with annexing uh, the Jordan River Valley. Uh, that would have forced uh, King Abdullah in Jordan to take some kind of uh, action and respond. And King Abdullah had made it increasingly clear that uh, he would be prepared to um, abrogate really Jordan peace agreement. One of the most important peace agreements in the region uh, would have gone under the bus, really annexation. Uh, the Emiratis, particularly Crown Prince Mohammed bin uh, Zayed, who is a personal friend of Bella, uh, really stepped in here. And it's clear that, that uh, MBZ, as he's called, also had his own motive. He wanted to uh, purchase uh, F-35 jet aircraft. No country in the Middle East except Israel has F-35s, and the UAE got an agreement from Donald Trump uh, that if they went forward with a normalization, uh, the UAE would be allowed to purchase 35s as well as a whole bunch of other very, very sophisticated new weapons. My own view is that uh, this was that the last thing the Persian Gulf needed using uh, the more sophisticated weapons that already has. That if we go forward with the sale of the F-35 uh, United Arab Emirates, we will only be fueling an arms race region. So, 
Bruce, uh, I want to ask about Saudi Arabia because, you know, over the past um, week, week and a half, um, Bibi went to Saudi Arabia and Jared Kushner is probably uh, in Saudi Arabia right now, if not on his way. Uh, and so what are we going to see a normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia? I think that's, you know, the big question uh, being uh, put out there right now. Um, of course, you know, the, the Trump administration is is nearing an end. Um, and so if if that does not happen under the current administration, which, you know, in my opinion, it's it's quite unlikely to happen, would we see the Biden administration attempt to pick that up? Several important questions. Let me begin with a little history. Saudi Arabia and Israel have had secret, covert uh, meetings uh, and worked jointly together on covert dating back to the 19th. Um, when Egypt under Kamal Abdel Nasser intervened in Yemen in 1962, uh, the Saudis, his royalist opponents, fighting the there, long, bitter civil war broke. Well, Israel also royalists, and the Saudis and the Israelis uh, knew that each other was supporting the royalists, uh, and their operations were coordinated. Uh, by the British. Also, my point here is this clandestine cooperation with Israel and Saudi Arabia is more than a half century. Um, having the Prime Minister of Israel come to uh, Saudi Arabia is, of course, uh, much more senior level dialogue. The dialogue between them has been on for a very, very long time. And during the Oslo Accords, the Saudis met directly in some of those conferences. Saudi Ambassador of the United States, Prince Bandar, frequently participated in events at the White House. Um, the meeting in uh, Saudi Arabia, the reported meeting in Saudi Arabia uh, between uh, what I call the three amigos, uh, Mike Pompeo, Giving it to Yahoo, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, um, occurred at a, at a remote location. Uh, Saudi word word is neo. Um, the fantasy city, really. It's there, there's no city neo. There are plans to build a high super tech city uh, in the decades ahead. Um, Saudi Arabia has made these kinds of plans about future ever since oil wealth of the 1970s came in, and most of them never come to any kind of fruition. Uh, the meeting was held here not because Neom uh, is a rising technological wonder, but because it is so remote from every other part of Saudi Arabia. Uh, they knew that they could meet. It's also because Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, uh, lives in fear of the security of his own life. Uh, he's made many, many enemies in Saudi Arabia the last five years. All the people that he had arrested, taken down at Mughal uh, a few years ago, all the people who have been stifled, who have been arrested. Uh, he's arrested his own uncle, former Crown Prince Mohammed bin Nayef, and holds him today um, in prison. Uh, he has many, many enemies in Saudi Arabia, and thus he spends a lot of his time in Neom, where his security is much easier to provide. Now, uh, what did this meeting uh, focus on? 
I don't think it was about normalization at all. Uh, King Solomon, uh, the crown prince's father, has made it abundantly clear that for him, secret connections with Israel are fine, but a normal agreement is dependent upon a solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict leads to the creation of a Palestinian state in the West Bank of East Jerusalem. That's his very hard and firm decision. And he has rebuked his son uh, anytime he is swayed off of that position. Rare times that MBS has been criticized by his father, even indirectly, always been about these issues. Jerusalem and Palestine. Then I think this meeting was focused entirely on the question of Iran. Pompeo, Netanyahu, and Mohammed bin Salman determined that Joe Biden uh, not be uh, allowed to revive uh, the Iran nuclear deal, the dump comprehensive plan of action, JCPOA, once he gets in. They are all supporters of a very hardline policy to Iran. I think what they were talking about when they met was coordinating their strategy for literally boxing in Joe Biden so that he cannot proceed with rebuilding negotiations with the Iranians. And we saw an early manifestation of that in the assassination in the last few days of the uh, head of the Iranian nuclear weapons program, or the man who is allegedly head of the Iranian nuclear weapons program, by an Israeli team of commandos in the city of Tehran. I think that's raw in the wind. I think you will see other things uh, coming in, in the 50-odd days now in inauguration that are intended to make it as hard as possible Joe Biden to go forward and reopen a dialogue with the government of Iran. So, Bruce, I want to dig into Iran just a bit more, uh, just because, you know, we've seen uh, this assassination, Israel bombed Iranian proxies in, in Syria. And so, you know, of course, it looks like Israel and the United States, their the relations with Iran, are, I guess, not really relations, but the conflict seems to be heating up. And so uh, what what do you think the the thinking is like in, in Tehran, right? Will Iran just stand idly by? I imagine that, you know, there has to be some sort of response given the the hardliners within Iran are are not just going to allow um, this to kind of go unanswered. And so um, if we kind of look at to to the Middle East, um, what what would a Iranian response look like? How could this worsen um, relations with the United States or maybe cause um, some sort of conflict between Iran and Israel or Iran and U.S. assets in the region? It's, it's very clear from following the Iranian media. Uh, there is a huge debate on Iran. Always very uh, tricky to um, give different factions of Iran titles. Uh, the natural tendency to want to call them moderates and hardliners. They're all really hardliners, but some are more aggressive. I think one element in Iran today is saying, let's just keep our powder dry. Uh, let's not do anything right now. We've been waiting four years, end of Donald Trump and Mike Pompeo. The end is in sight. January 21st is coming. 
let's not do anything to make uh, against um, getting the JCPOA back up and up with the Americans at the table going again. Let's not set the chance we have of seeing these economic sanctions Trump administration has uh, deployed being lifted, the Iranian economy being allowed to operate. Or, on the other hand, uh, there are those who are saying, no, we must do something. We must take some kind of action. Uh, the kind of action uh, that they might consider, uh, we've seen several ideas laid out there. Uh, one is for expelling the IAEA inspectors out of the law, uh, which would seriously uh, any prospect ACPOA back together. If the inspectors aren't there, um, no way of knowing whether uh, Iran is living up to its. Another step, which has been discussed in the Iranian media, is taking some kind of military action directly against Iran, uh, against Israel. Uh, an Iranian newspaper connected to very hardline elements in the Iranian Revolutionary Guards called for a missile attack on the Israeli city of Haifa. Um, Haifa, they picked because Haifa is home of Israel's um, petroleum uh, importing uh, facilities and uh, a strike on those could produce a, a really cataclysmic um, fire event. Another option I'm sure that the Iranians are thinking about is striking not against the United States or Israel, or sure to retaliate in Islam, but striking against the Saudis. Uh, in September of um, 2018, you will recall uh, that they did precisely that. Uh, they used precision-guided drones and uh, missiles to strike at the single most important uh, petroleum facility in Saudi Arabia, the Abqaeda uh, plant. Uh, and, they, and they did significant damage to it. Uh, the Saudis were able to get it back online in a few weeks, but it was a very serious display of Iran's capacity to use precision-guided munitions uh, right inside Saudi Arabia with impunity. Saudis had no response Raid. The United States did not respond to the raid. Uh, the, Saudi, the Iranians got away with it. And there is probably a duration underway in Iran today of let's, why don't we do it again? We'll see. I would hope for now that calmer heads will prevail in terror uh, and that they will say to themselves, well, let's wait until January 20th and see what kind of offers uh, we get from the Biden team. Uh, the Iranians have undoubtedly noticed that uh, Biden has chosen for his national security advisor position, which does not require congressional um, approval, uh, Jake Sullivan. Uh, Jake was one of the team of American diplomats who engaged with the Iranians for the Five plus one negotiation, and that produced the um, uh, ACPOA. Uh, it was the back channel. Jake Sullivan and several others 
William Burns, was meeting in Muscat, Oman, directly with the Iranians that opened the door in the chase. I, I'm undoubtedly sure the Iranians uh, see in Sullivan's uh, appointment position uh, an indication Biden is going to put serious effort in reopening a dialogue uh, with the Iranians, and, and he should. Um, at the end of the Obama administration, thanks to the work of uh, Jake, of uh, Bill Burns in the State Department, and others, we not only had a nuclear deal that froze the Iranian program with a array of on-the-ground inspections, we also had a dialogue between Foreign Minister Perry uh, and his Iranian counterpart, in which they dealt directly with each other, either in person or by phone, often in order to try to prevent uh, crises in the Middle East from boiling over. That wasn't a perfect solution. Um, there were serious problems between Iran and the United States. Um, but it was a much better situation, which we, for the first time since 1978, had a real dialogue in a way with Iran. Uh, and it was a terrible mistake. Terrible mistake. Just throw that away. And to throw away the JCPOA. Right? So, and on that note, I guess when we're looking at the future of U.S.-Israel relations under, especially the Biden administration, I mean, we often make much ado about the Trump-Netanyahu relationship, their own personal rapport. But I mean, President-elect Biden has had quite a bit of experience in dealing with Israel from his time, whether it's on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, serving as vice president for eight years. And while we often saw that personal relations between President Obama and Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel were quite poor, uh, how would you characterize Biden's relationship with Netanyahu? Uh, I think he also uh, uh, has uh, had a frosty relationship with Netanyahu. Prime Minister had a um, characteristic of announcing the creation of a new settlement box. Uh, in the West Bank or around East Jerusalem, virtually every time Joe Biden showed up, not ingratiate the Prime Minister. All that said, though, Joe Biden is a rare American uh, politician who has uh, stood by Israel, Senate, uh, Vice President's office, and by Israel. I think that there may be some friction in the Biden White House and Netanyahu, but I don't think there's going to be any real uh, fundamental erosion of really relations. Nor do I think Vice President Kamala Harris like that. She has long track being also uh, for Israel uh, in the Senate. Uh, I think where you're going to see crisis U.S. relations with a Middle East is in the U.S. Saudi version. The Biden team uh, is called a reassessment of U.S. Saudi relations. Biden, in the last Democratic debate, the Arabia pariah, he punished things. 
Biden-Harris campaign put out a statement in October on the two-year anniversary of the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, calling for those responsible to be held accountable for the murder, and specifically saying that Saudi Crown Prince had ordered thus implying that he should be held accountable. Uh, the uh, Democrats on the Hill uh, voted in uh, 1919, uh, to cut off arms sales and arms deliveries to Saudi Arabia uh, for both the Khashoggi there and even more importantly for the horrendous war in Yemen. MBS's uh, uh, signature foreign policy move, uh, which has created the largest humanitarian crisis in the world today, a catastrophe. Um, uh, Donald Trump protected the Saudis by vetoing that legislation. I'm sure that if Biden doesn't move quickly along similar routes, I'm going to find that his Democratic base, Senate and House, lacked for him. I don't think there's any doubt that he lacked on his own. I think we're going to see very significant um, change in U.S.-Saudi relations. After all, the presidency promising to make climate change one of its signature issues has appointed John Kerry to the cabinet as uh, Minister of State for Climate Change. Um, relations with the United States, the world's largest uh, producer of uh, petroleum products, is going to be fraught. Um, we want to shut down their business. Not immediately, but over the course of the next two decades. And that's that by itself could lead to very serious problems in the US Saudi relations. So I think the, the, the areas you're going to see change are not in US Israeli relations. I think you're going to see a modest rebuilding of US Palestinian relations. So, Bruce, let's uh, begin to round out the conversation by returning to Israel-Palestine relations. You, of course, served as a CIA analyst, um, and a big part of a CIA analyst's job is, you know, contributing to intelligence products. One of these in particular is the National Intelligence Estimate, uh, which is like the authoritative assessment on a specific security issue that the IC puts out. And so if we were to create an NIE on the future relations between Israel and Palestine, what do you think it would say? Is there is there any reason to be optimistic, or is pessimism uh, more realistic? I, I regretfully uh, think pessimism is the is the uh, realistic where things are going to go. Um, I think there's a very serious uh, possibility of another intifada coming breaking out at some point that would include. Uh, violent activities among the really Arab, that is Israeli Arab, Arabs, Palestinians, uh, who are Israeli citizens, live inside Israel. Argument for separation or creating a, a Palestinian state, uh, thereby removing the demographic challenge. Jewish minority 
uh, between the river and the sea. Uh, that is the old British mandate of Palestine. Compelling. Should be compelling. Um, but uh, is steadily undermined by the likes of Netanyahu and others over time. Tell Israelis, don't worry about it. We'll handle it. We'll get through. Um, I, I'm, I'm concerned very much about all of this going. Uh, and normalization between Israel and Bahrain or Israel and Sudan doesn't address this. It, these things are good in their own right, but nobody have any illusion that this is advancing cause of just fair between Israelis and Arabs. And then I guess on that note, uh, overall, do you think peace between Israel and Palestine is possible? And maybe not even within a few years, but within a few decades? I guess that's what a lot of people are wanting to know from, I mean, so many of these developments many of which have been adverse in nature. You know, the, the deep irony here is that we all know what a deal is. It's not a, it's not a big secret. The deal is essentially uh, the creation of uh, Bill Clinton's last acts in, in his uh, White House days, certain parameters. And that was uh, the return of uh, uh, 95% West Bank uh, to Palestinian 100%. And territorial swaps uh, that would give uh, the Palestinians the uh, remaining 5% from Israeli territory, probably in the Negev, uh, to make it up. In return for that uh, territorial arrangement, um, Israel would get full normalization. It's not just with Palestinians, but with Saudi Arabia and the entire Arab world. And that's what the Saudi peace plan created by King Abdullah promises. So the outline of what, of, of what the end game is, um, it's not a mystery. Uh, we went to Camp David in July 2000. The end game was very much a mystery. Uh, there had been no development of a consensus on how does this thing end. Uh, 20 years later, that mystery is gone. We know how this ends. Not a question what. It's a question of political um, willingness. And unfortunately today, uh, we certainly don't see that in the Netanyahu government. And on the Palestinian side, we have a leadership which is sclerotic, uh, consumed with uh, staying in power uh, despite their advancing age, um, and which is divided between uh, the PA in the West Bank and Hamas uh, in Gaza. So we know what, we know what the, um, paraphrase Barack Obama's new book, we know what the promised land looks like. Uh, we just have to develop the political will uh, to get us there. And I don't see that on the on the horizon um, point at all. And on that note, Bruce, I, I want to thank you for such a fascinating and important conversation. We we covered a lot. There's of course a lot more to cover on this very um, fraught and complicated issue. 
uh, but your insights and analyses, particularly given your uh, firsthand experience in, in dealing with the Israel-Palestine issue and the broader U.S. policy towards the Middle East, uh, is greatly appreciated. So uh, once again, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I have spent a great deal of my life working on this problem. My father, United Nations, and uh, we moved to uh, then Jordania and Jerusalem uh, three years after I was born. And uh, it's uh, never gotten out of my system. Thank you for having me, and uh, I look forward to listening to the podcast.